All right, we're going to uh, take the offering. I will pass these buckets on either side. Uh, for sake of time, we're just going to move through. Uh, we won't have a song, and uh, John will start with the second session. After John is finished with the prayer, you can consider yourself dismissed. I will probably be over there. So after John is finished in the prayer, you're dismissed, and you can head over to the school for the ice cream party if you like. Thank you, John. Well, good evening. It's the uh, last evening of Summer Bible School. It's gone by really fast. And uh, it's been good to be here and, and listen and share some. So um, I think we'll go in somewhat of a different direction this evening. And uh, on the first evening, I, I told you that after this is finished, you're going you're to feel like you've been given a drink of water from a fire hydrant. And I think that's true. It's just so much coming at you. How can you take it all in? Because... Um, here we go in a, in a different direction again. So let me just give you an outline for what I would like to accomplish this evening is to, um, to finish some of my thoughts from the last session. We talked about some of the other religions in comparison to Christianity and how that Christianity uh, makes, makes logical sense, provides comfort and things like that, where some of the other religions just don't do that. So I'd like to finish up those thoughts and then move into um, what we can know that our identity in Christ is, some things that do provide comfort, things we can know and trust in, our identity in Christ, and hopefully finish out the last um, 15 minutes or so with that. So uh, just a little bit of review. We were talking about some of these other religions, and we had begun with Islam and looked at the historical problems that it faces and has to answer. And we talked about the philosophical problems where their reasoning or their, their religion and their, their um, platitudes and their statements just don't make sense. They just don't make any sense. And we can do that with just reasoning, with just thinking through it. And then we were almost ready to get into the, um, what I'm going to call the theological problems with Islam and the fact that they provide no assurance or comfort for a person's soul. A lot of their... Um, in fact, I don't think any of their teaching really provides the assurance of salvation. It's kind of religious hope. It's not a living faith or a saving faith. And um, it doesn't provide any comfort or assurance for a person's soul, even going through life on a day-to-day -day basis. There's a story from the late Ravi Zacharias. Um, think what you will of him. He, he had some good truth. He, he told a story personally when he was meeting with the chief mufti of religion in Jerusalem, now this was an Islamic uh, leader, religious leader, very educated person, and as they sat and chatted, Ravi pointed to a portrait on the mufti's desk of a beautiful young lady, and he said, is that your daughter? And the mufti said, it is. So Ravi says, if that daughter of yours would convert to Christianity, what would happen? And the mufti didn't blink an eye, he said, I would kill her. I would kill her. He said, you would kill your daughter? He said, I'd do everything I could to keep her from converting. If she converted, someone else would take her and kill her, his own daughter. But the trouble is, that was his concept of Allah. That's, that's how he regarded his God. And you see the difference. There's no concept of a loving Heavenly Father in Islam. Um, none. In fact, if you would call God a father, it'd be blasphemous and you'd be in trouble uh, compare that to the New Testament, the Angeal, as they would call it, where God is mentioned as Father over 200 times as a loving, caring, heavenly Father. 
So there's no assurance of salvation. We said one evening this week that within Christianity, the starting point is at best only the hope for finish line in every, in every other major world religion the world over, and that's the assurance of salvation. So our starting point is at best only their hope for a finish line. And if you take that away from Christianity, that assurance of salvation, we basically regress and become no different than any other religion world over. The second problem they have from a theological standpoint is that there's no bestowment of value placed upon people by a loving creator. We take these things for granted. There's no bestowment of value placed upon people or you know, the creation by a loving creator. Compare that or just contrast that to a God on a cross. Think about that. How that God has loved us. And how much more God could say after Calvary, how I have loved you. So contrast that to a God on a cross. There's one writer who says that the measure of human value is not to be found in politics, it's not to be found in money, not in beauty, not even in a good moral life, but it's personal. God has placed value and worth on our person, on you for who you are. In Islam, love and worth must be earned, and even then they don't know if they have. For us, it's a foregone conclusion. We know God loves us. And just look at Calvary again and again. I'm not minimizing the fact that God blesses obedience. It's not what I'm saying at all. But God loves you. He has placed worth on you and your person. He loves you just because you're you. The Bible says we're fashioned in his image, the Imaga Dei, the image of God. And God loves us just because you're you. We'll move into Hindu a little bit. Uh, compare Hindu to Christianity. Think about some of these things. Um, so Hindu does have holy writings. They have what's called the, the Vedas and the Upanishads. Uh, those are the, the kind of the, the books that they have. They're holy writings. They're not easy to read. They're confusing. Hindu, um, the religion of Hinduism, I, I've, the best description I've heard is, is a borrowed description. This man said it's not at all monolithic. In other words, it's not a clear, easy, identifiable object. There's no clear starting point and straight line forward like, like Christianity, like Judeo-Christian belief. No clear starting point and straight line forward. He said, Is, or Hindu must be studied by grappling with the exponents. Uh, in other words, we have to grapple with it by studying the exponents. Imagine a snowball rolling down a hill and just gathering and gathering and gathering. So Hinduism, Hinduism has kept multiplying rapidly over the centuries. It just keeps growing and embracing and bringing more into it. It's a very Eastern religion. It's very ancient. In fact, I've heard stories of um, young Asian, Chinese, and, and Indian students coming to study in the US and uh, getting a taste of Western Christianity, returning back to their countries and, and becoming even more devout in Hinduism and Confucianism and things like that because their religions are old and tested and proved. Christianity looks like it's weak and changing uh, they hold on to theirs very dearly. It has its roots in the occult. It makes an appeal to the human psyche through mysticism. 
I think it's actually it's mysticism dressed up as spirituality and making it makes an appeal to the to the the human uh, spiritual hungers. In fact, Hinduism is so flimsy, fundamentally you can dismantle it, but the people just just believe it because it, it uh, tracks them with all its its mystical spiritual pronouncements and things like that. It's a highly stratified society, which means there's castes within. There's different levels of of uh, honor and things like that and, and um, positions. So we know of four castes, the Brahmins, which would be the priests. The second caste, I can't pronounce, it's like the rulers and the governments. The third would be the Vashiya, merchants, tradesmen, farmers. And then the Shudras are the laboring classes. And is there one class below that? Does anybody know in Hindu? There's still one, that's the Dalits, the untouchables. And what's sad about these is that you don't necessarily change your caste. You're born into your caste, and that's where you stay. So the priests and the rulers um, are, are live, they fare pretty well, whereas the Dalits and the lower classes don't do very well at all. I think Charles Dickens, in his book, A Tale of Two Cities, made a statement that, that applies here. He said that splendor rode hard on the bony shoulders of squalor just prior to the French Revolution, and I think that applies to Hinduism. All right, Hinduism is polytheistic. It has many gods. They're all extremely opposed. Uh, it has a trinity. The Shiva is, Shiva is the destroyer. Brahma creator, Vishnu preserver. They, uh, they, they're not at all in unison. They are extreme opposites. And here's something that Hindu has to grapple with. Uh, this is in, in stark contrast to Christianity. All of the Hindu gods, and there's many, I think Hindu speaks of 330 million deities just, just within their belief system alone. Um, all the Hindu gods are derivative or products of nature. If you look at them and study them, nature has spawned them or given birth to them and so forth. They're products of nature. The God of the Bible is outside and is the creator of nature. That's an enormous difference in the two beliefs. Every Hindu god is a product, derivative of nature. And I think we'll talk about that just a little bit later, why that's a problem. Let's go to the, the philosophical problems of Hinduism, some of the things that don't bear logic. So it's, it's a pantheistic belief. Pantheism means God is everything. God is everything. But what's the problem with that? So if God is everything, God is nothing. There's no point of distinction. There's, he's the same as everything else. So you can't say God is everything and be different from anything else. So there's no point of distinction. If God is everything, God is nothing. They call their God um, some of their beliefs. They have lots of different ones. An eternal reality, a non-personal, without attributes. But in one of the Vedas, this certain God expresses creative desires. So that's an attribute. Um, here's a philosophical problem within Hindu. Krishna is one of the many gods within Hinduism, and Krishna always acted alone. He's like the su very supreme god. Um, there could have been quite a few Krishnas, but the one I think I want to speak about here in the Vedas, Krishna pronounces himself as a sacrifice for humans. This is interesting. This is the closest any other world religion comes to Christianity, where, where God actually becomes a sacrifice for the humans. 
But the problem with Krishna is that he acted alone. He's, he's completely alone. He's not within a trinity. But he's making payment. He's making a sacrifice. But we all know that a payment can't be made until first of all, first of all we know how much is due and second to whom it's due. So it collapses. Whereas in Christianity, you see the transaction being made between father and son, the price being paid. Um, Hindu has the problem with karma, the cycle of, de of death and rebirth. So every life is a rebirth from a previous life, and the life you're living now is, is um, good or bad depending on your previous life. So if you, have a, if you live a good life now, you'll come back a little bit better. If you have a bad life now, you'll come back worse, sometimes as an animal, things like that. It's a cycle of death and rebirth. And the goal is to live good life upon good life upon good life until you reach moksha, their, their version of heaven. But the problem with karma, and this is one thing they don't want to talk about, is that there cannot be this endless or this infinite number of regressions. If this life is a payment for a previous life, from a previous life, from a previous life, what was my sin in the life, my first life? You had to go back to the first one. What, what went right or wrong in the first life? And it's a question they can't answer. There has to be a starting point. What did a person do right or wrong in his non-existence? There's no comfort in Hindu. There's a story, I think, I think I'll take the time to tell this little bit of this story here. This is a true story. And it talks about the fact that Hindu doesn't provide comfort. It really can't provide comfort or assurance to its people. So um, a number of years ago, the phrase MH370 was a pretty well-known and talked about phrase. On March the 8th of 2014, there was a large wide-body jet that flew out of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, en route for Beijing, China. And about an hour into its course, it flew off course, turned around, and flew back across the Indian Ocean, and as far as we know, it disappeared. It was gone, and really hasn't been heard from since. It was called MH370, a Malaysian airliner that disappeared. Shortly after midnight, on March the 8th of 2014, um, the next morning, there was a man in India who was waiting for his wife to come back from a business trip, and as he, around his house that morning, he began watching a little news clip on the, on the television there, and he seen that a, a, pl a plane had gone missing. And he watched closer and realized it was a plane his wife was on. And uh, she was gone, and no one knew where, where the people were, where the plane was. And I remember following that story closely and came across a letter that he wrote a number of weeks, maybe a month after she was gone. And he had, he had taken to walking the streets in desperation just, just at the end of himself. But he wrote a letter hoping that she can read it someplace sometime. It was probably one of the most painful letters I've ever read in my life. The man and his wife were devout Hindus, but his wording in the letter was pure Christian. When he came to the end of himself, to the depth of his, his horrors, Hinduism offered nothing. He talked about things eternal, hoping she's somewhere in a place where he can see her again and things like that. Um, couldn't accept the concepts of Hinduism. It provided no comfort. And without even knowing it, he was writing about things you would have thought a Christian wrote the paper. So their version of heaven is called moksha. It's a freedom from the cycle of death and rebirth. The problem is no word has ever come back from moksha. We don't know if anybody's there, what it's like. 
And um, very different from Christianity. Compare that to John 14, where Jesus has gone and prepared a place for his, for his followers and so forth. So it's really um, a painful religion that offers almost nothing to its people. Jesus offers humanity a new birth and not just endless cycles of a rebirth. And I think that's the crucial key between the two. It's a new birth, new birth compared to a rebirth. I think I'll just leave the things about Buddhism out and I'll talk about our um, identity in Christ. I think that might be more edifying for the rest of the evening. There's some things about Buddhism, but we don't really interact with them so much unless we go to places like Thailand on mission fields. Uh, I'll just leave that go for now. Let's talk about our identity in Christ. What does it mean or even look like? What should we know? What are some of the things we should know about our identity now that we're Christian and we're identified with Jesus? There's two passages in the Bible, I think, that best describe Jesus for his humility and then for his magnificence. And we identify with both of these in humility and in his glory. In Philippians chapter 2, this is probably one of the oldest writings that we have. It was probably a, most likely a creed that was circulated among the early church before any of the New Testament was written, a creed they had recited and would keep repeating orally. Here's what it says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how do we identify with this Jesus who's described in this early creed? And remember, he's, he's depicted here as a servant. He made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant. Now, the Greek undertext there would have the word doulos. He made himself a servant. And uh, it's interesting that the word... There's two words for servant in Greek, and it's not always translated like it should be into the English. So the first word that Greek uses for servant is doulos, and the second is diakonos. A doulos was a bond slave who had absolutely no possessions, no rights, no nothing. He was property of someone else. And that's what this is telling us about Jesus. He was a bond slave, a servant. Um, Jill Briscoe, who's a, a British missionary, when talking about this passage, she said, we need to identify ourselves as the doulos, as the slave that Jesus, and serve humanity in the way that Jesus did. She said, we're the, the doulos with the logos. What she said is, we're the, the servant or the slave with the word. So we serve humanity in every way we can. We're, we're basically their slave or their servant, all the while feeding them the word. The doulos with the logos. We're the slave with the word. And I love that illustration. Remember that tomorrow, you're the slave, you're God's slave, carrying the word of life. You help them, you assist them, you love them, and you give them the word. Now listen to what the Bible says about the magnificence of Christ and God's expectations from us for here, from this. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And it's a picture of Jesus ascended, magnificent, glorified Jesus. And we have an identity in that, that Lord. What is the highest symbol of power that we read of in the Bible? What's the highest symbol of power? Isn't it that of a seated enthronement? Isn't that the highest symbol of power that the Bible gives to us, a seated enthronement? Where is Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the Father, Acts 2 and Revelation 4. So we, our identity is in that, in the highest power that, that earth and heaven know. Our identity is steadfast and immovable in that, in the enthroned Christ. All right, let's quickly look at four things that we can know about our identity in Jesus. Four things that are helpful, I think, to us. Number one, we've been chosen by God. We've been chosen by God. The Bible says you're a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for who, and a people for his own possession. I don't believe in predestination. Uh, I don't think that Reformed theology is right. But I do think there's times when God deliberately calls out and elects when God moves into history and takes a person, he may have predestinated that person for that reason and things like that. You think about Abraham and Moses and the Apostle Paul, God moved on them. He, had a, he, he elected them. I think they were predestined in a sense to do God's will. And um, I think that's also true of the Church of Christ. I think that you and I are also, we make up that church. And I think that the Church of Jesus is is a direct intervention into history. It's that something, something God had predestined. He foreknew, and you and I get to be part of that. That's, it's an amazing concept. It's something God knew beforehand, and right now, you and I are taking part in that. We're part of something of a, of a direct intervention into history by God. He, he made his way into history, and we're playing a part of that. But I think God has also chosen us on a personal level. God has chosen you. He chose you. You were part of his, his planet creation. In fact, probably the, the capstone of his planet creation. He, he chose us. He wanted us. He desires to have relationship with us. Um, he had us in mind before creation, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. And I think C.S. Lewis has said it better than anybody when he talks about this. We try so hard to serve God so we're good enough for him, so he can accept us. But he said, actually, you're God's dream. You're God's dream. He's made us part of his plan. He has placed his dream inside of you. So we're chosen by God. He wants us. He chose us. And he moved um, to make that all possible. Secondly, we're valued by God. 
In Psalm we read where the Bible says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. He talks about how that he has set his glory above the heavens. And when I consider the work of thy hands, he says, the sun and the moon and the stars and everything you've created, then who is manned? Who is man and who am I that you're mindful of me? And yet you have crowned man with glory and honor. So God has placed incredible value on every human, especially those who have come to Christ in faith. He values and has crowned you with glory and honor. So what puts value onto something? This illustration doesn't work very well, but uh, 50 years ago there was probably a lot of used shoe stores. And um, let's say you walk into a used shoe store to buy a pair of sneakers, and if there's a pair of sneakers that were owned by me here, and one owned by, let's say, some uh, President Trump over here, which one is worth more money? It wouldn't be mine. It wouldn't be mine. So the God has placed his value, his worth on you. We're valued by God. And we're also loved by God. The Bible says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, propiti the propitiation for our sins. God loves us. I wish we could just somehow grasp that tonight and just bask in the love of God. He loves us just, just because you're you. You're his dream. He fashioned you for his glory. He loves us. Somebody said, and I think rightly said, it probably won't be until we get to the glories that we'll ever stop trying to be good enough for God. He, he loves you just because you're you. And we should just revel in God's love. We should live out of God's love. Um, John Lennox, who's a, a pretty well-known Bible teacher, is married to a lady by the name of Sally, married for, I think, 50-some years. And he says that um, his wife, Sally, knows that she doesn't have to cook just right in order to win his love. He says, she knows I love her in spite of her cooking. But that's exactly what sets her free to cook. And that's how it is for us and God. He loves us in spite of who we are. And that's precisely what sets us free to serve. We're loved by God. And that should set us free to serve. God loves you, not for what you do, but just because you're you. And the last point is that we've been forgiven by God. We've been forgiven by God. In the Old Testament already, God talking about his people, he said, Behold, I've forgiven their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. And can we even think it possible to think about God's forgiveness without considering the cross? The cross of Jesus. There's a story in the Bible in Matthew chapter 16 where it talks about Jesus and his disciples, and it says they came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and they're in discussion. So Jesus says to them, who are people saying that I am? And some said they're saying that you're John the Baptist, and others, Jeremiah. Some say Elijah, and some say a prophet. And he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood hasn't revealed that, but my Father who is in heaven. And on that confession, I build the church. And uh, after that, he began to tell them about the manner of death. They're going to Jerusalem, and the manner of death he was to die, and three days rise again. And when they found out that this was happening, Peter immediately stepped forward and said, Never, never, my Lord. And Jesus says, Get thou behind me, Satan. He said, you, Your mind is set on the things of the earth, 
and not the things of the Lord. And he went to Calvary and was crucified. That scourge of humanity, that cruel instrument of death, died on a cross for you and for I. God on a cross. Have you ever noticed that there's a certain scale of ascendancy at the crucifixion of Jesus? There's a fascinating chain of events. So Judas handed Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin gave Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate gave Jesus to the soldiers, and the soldiers consigned him to a cross. And yet they all justified their actions by saying that they're just, they were just obeying an authority higher than themselves. All of them. Oftentimes we too try to, we attempt to justify ourselves by contrasting ourselves to someone that we assume is worse than ourselves. We do the same thing. You see, Judas gave Jesus to the, to the Sanhedrin because of greed, the Sanhedrin to Pilate because of envy, and Pilate gave him to the soldiers because he was a coward, and the soldiers nailed him to the cross because they feared man more than God. So in that whole list, who do you think is the most guilty person of all? I think the answer is you and I. We are. We're the most guilty person of all. Until we see the cross in the light of our own sins, we'll probably never understand its mercy. And until we share in the guilt, we can never claim its grace. So how do we live now that we've been chosen, loved, forgiven, and valued? How should we live since we can identify in Christ in this way? I think it's very important that we believe the gospel message of salvation and grace and live according and speak according. Um, in the 1700s, David Hume was a, a well-known blasphemer, wrote a lot of philosophy that still does damage in our time, very anti-God, and um, did a lot of damage to people's minds and so forth. And he also was a contemporary of George Whitfield, that famous uh, English preacher who came to America on several preaching tours. One day in pouring down rain in London, a friend of David Hume seen him hurrying down the street in, in pouring down rain. And he says, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to listen to Whitfield preach across town. <clears throat> His friend says, you don't believe a word he says. He says, no, I don't. But I want to hear it from a man who does. I want to hear it from a man who does. That needs to be us. That needs to be us. Believe it. Uh, foster deep convictions. One of the best stories in the Bible is the story of Daniel and uh, how a young person taken from his homeland and set over into a, into a foreign country and under the, the rulership of a, a pagan king. And one of the first things he was ordered to do was eat the king's food. And he refused to do it. But did you ever notice how in Daniel chapter 1, it's Daniel who refuses to eat, but in Daniel chapter 6, it's the lions who refuse to eat. I think there's a connection. So foster deep convictions. I think it's connected. There is an incredible power of godly convictions in the, in the life of a person. And just one more story. Um, don't ever forget that Jesus is coming again. Don't ever forget that, that Jesus is coming again. Live with that reality. Mark, Hitch, uh, Mark Hitchcock, I think it is, that great preacher of prophecy, tells a story about Queen Elizabeth in the middle of the 18, 1900s, the queen was coming to America, 
and she was going to be making a tour throughout America, stopping in numbers of cities and preaching and talking and things like that. And one of the cities she was coming to was the great city of Chicago. And Chicago sprang into action. They cleaned and painted and swept and cleaned and painted and swept again until their city was shining in preparation for the queen. In the middle of all this activity, there was a young person, a reporter, who took his pad and his pencil and walked down to the street to the large Drake Hotel where the queen was going to be staying. And he walked in and he found the manager, a, a very large, brusque person. And he says, sir, I have a question for you. He said, what have you done since the queen is staying here? What have you done in preparation for the queen? And the manager said, nothing. He said, nothing? The queen is coming? You've done nothing? He says, no, sir. He said, my hotel is always ready for a queen. What about your heart? Before God in this moment tonight, is it ready for a king? He is coming. He is coming. So what should we do until he comes again? Remember that you're never too small, never too frail, never too weak to work for God. God has put some of his greatest treasures inside some of the smallest and weakest vessels. You're never too frail, never too old, never too small to work for God. He's put his greatest treasures in some of the weakest vessels. All right, well, thank you for listening. You've been a, a fun audience to talk to, and may the Lord bless you. Let's just pray, and then we'll consider ourselves dismissed. Our dear Heavenly Father, we...